This week on the Optimum Podcast, we're talking to Dan Mahoney, who's the Life Sciences Investment Envoy for the UK, amongst many other illustrious positions, such as Chairman, I believe, of the BIA. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Eva. I know we've known each other for quite some time, so hopefully this is going to be a lot of fun for both us and for the people listening. So I'll kick off with uh, one of my first questions. Can you tell us about your experience in the healthcare industry to date and your journey to becoming the Life Sciences Investment Envoy for the UK? So my journey, I think, was quite circuitous and wasn't really planned in any shape or form. So I did my PhD in Cambridge and then actually moved to the US and did an industrial postdoc at a biotech company in Palo Alto, just on the outskirts of Stanford University. And then after a minus 70 freezer incident where I lost a year's worth of work overnight, I decided that science maybe wasn't for me. And so I moved to New York to join an investment bank where I was an associate sort of uh, as a sell-side analyst. Saw all those companies IPO in 99-2000 as part of the genomics revolution. Moved back to the UK in 2000 where I worked for Morgan Stanley for seven years. And then I left the sell-side and set up with uh, my friend Gareth Powell, the healthcare business at Polar Capital, which we ran together for about 15 years. And then I decided um, that was probably long enough to do anything. And I was beginning to build a portfolio career. And then I got talked into joining Evatech for a year and a half by Werner Lantaler, the CEO of Evatech, where I was an entrepreneur in residence and helped them out a little bit with their corporate venture fund. And uh, so I left Evatech at the beginning of this year, really with the idea of taking a bit of a sabbatical. But uh, at the end of 2022, I got asked to take on this role as the Life Science Investment Envoy, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about for the UK government, really to try and get more capital flowing into the life sciences sector, which I thought was both important personally, but also for the whole sector, really, and was something that as chair of the BIA was sort of really important to the membership of the Bioindustry Association as well. Apart from all of that, was there anything else that motivated you to take on the new role? And sort of what are your goals for increasing investment in scaling life sciences companies? Have you, you know, got any kind of mental KPIs that you're thinking about or things you want to achieve? Well, I think one of the frustrations I've had for many years really is how difficult it has been in the UK to take some of our great science, translate that and build big companies. And I think um, many of us have been part of roundtables and discussions around that. I don't think there's one single solution to that, but certainly capital is an issue. And I think that what led me to agree to take on this role is I think there is an opportunity right now to try and unlock some capital from institutions, particularly pension funds in the UK, to start funding just innovation in general, actually, but obviously life sciences is sort of where my expertise lies. And the gap that I see at the moment is the lack of growth capital. So capital required where you might need anything from 30 to $100 million, say, to actually really start scaling a company. That's very difficult to raise in the UK right now. It's not impossible, but there aren't many sources of capital, certainly domestically. Great. And um, how do you plan on championing the UK life sciences sector, in that case, to sort of national, uh, UK and international investors to help increase this investment? Well, I think there's a couple of things that I'm trying to do. Uh, The first is 
to try and rebuild the financial ecosystem. And what I mean by that is really pulling out the investors from seed, Series A, B, the growth capital guys doing Series C crossover, and also even the public investors. Because I think what's happened is uh, people have sort of drifted apart. And we still have expertise along that continuum, but we probably need more expertise or more people, and we probably need more capital as well. So it's trying to bring that group together. I think also there's the government seems quite committed to try and unlock capital out of pension funds. So over the last ooh, 20, 30 years, we've had a steady de-equitization of the UK economy. So to put that in context, in 1998, the average pension fund in, in the UK, which at the time was a defined benefit pension, which obviously are close to most people now, but they would have about 70% in equities. So that's across the board, uh, mainly in publicly traded equities. That number now is 7%. And so we've steadily seen our, if you like, our most patient or long-term capital is not investing in an asset class, i.e. equities, which is the asset class you should be invested in if you've got a 20-year-plus view. And I think the government's quite committed to trying to turn that around. They've changed some of the regulations around things like solvency two, et cetera, which has been preventing people from making riskier investments. And so I think that the opportunity is to try and get some of that capital flowing down into domestic funds, so funds that are run in the UK. And I think in terms of sort of one of the things or the goals or the KPIs is that every growth capital fundraising, so anything that's sort of 30 to $100 million, our goal should be to have at least one UK investor playing a proper role in that. Ideally, it'd be great if we had a UK-based investor leading each of those rounds, because I think a, a properly functioning financial system, it's great to get foreign capital coming in. I'm not saying we don't need uh, foreign direct investment, but you really want sort of a domestic player who's going to coordinate and sit and build those syndicates. And I think that is a much healthier financing system, which we possibly had 25, 30 years ago when we started in finance. And it's a matter of trying to rebuild that again. And then I think um, that doesn't mean that we still won't see companies going to list on NASDAQ, etc. But I think it does mean that we'll have more capital flowing into the UK, which will allow companies to go to the next level or get bigger, build stronger routes here, which means we have more jobs in the UK, we have more IP sitting in the UK, and potentially creates a base from which those companies can begin to sell globally. Do you think um, we have a problem in terms of risk aversion sort of culturally compared to the likes of the US, or is it purely a, a function of just the availability of capital that's around? I think it's a combination of both things, really, but at sort of at different levels. So I think when I speak to friends, colleagues who are running venture capital funds, I don't think they're necessarily risk averse. I think they're lacking capital. I think what's happened is that with some of the regulations that have come in over the 10 years, last 10 years, the regulator has forced people or forced trustees or whoever's allocating capital to become more risk averse. And I think that what they've lost here is the concept of of time frame. So you keep hearing in uh, the press at the moment that sort of equities are riskier than bonds. Well, that's true on a three-month period, but it's not true on a 20-year period. And that's empirically and theoretically as well. And so I think that's something that is part of the culture that's got to change. 
The other thing that I think has got to change is an understanding of the difference between risk and uncertainty. So risk is really uh, where you've got a probabilistic outcome. It's like flipping a coin. It's a 50-50 chance of something actually happening. Uncertainty is uh, when you get those what's called long-tailed risks. That's what innovation does. So essentially, uh, a new technology is created that has, uh, if you like, an exponential effect on growth that's very, very difficult to predict. And I think that when you think of investment, investing in a bond is risky because there's a finite amount of return you can get from a bond. Whereas if you own an equity, you essentially, as the uh, investor, you have a share of the cash flows into perpetuity. So if that company sort of, if you take a company like, say, Tesla, that revolutionizes battery storage cars and God knows what else, which would have been very difficult to predict 10 years ago, you can make, A, quite uh, substantial returns. But that's really what drives innovation in a society and ultimately what drives productivity and GDP growth for the long term. And I think in part, that's one of the reasons why the UK at the moment has got very low productivity and disappointing GDP growth, because we've eliminated a, a source of capital that drives those really important things on a 10, 20 year view. And we also have a stock market locally, FTSE, et cetera, that is very much driven by more traditional kind of older style companies that are somewhat lower growth, not so much tech. I think so. But then on the other hand, you do still have some tech investors in the UK. So my former colleagues at Polar Capital, they, they run a £10 billion technology investment company. They don't invest in many UK companies. A lot of it's in the US, but there, there is expertise here. And I think that there is risk aversion on the London, well, that's a very general term, on the London Stock Exchange. But I think if you look in our sector, I think generalist investors still struggle with investing in a biotech where they feel there's binary risk that you could wake up tomorrow and a drug fails and obviously the stock could be worth effectively zero. But on the other hand, I still think you've got some appetite for investing in loss-making companies if they've got revenue growth. So if you look at sort of companies like an Abcam, which, well, actually that now is profitable, but or if you look at Oxford Nanopore, if you've got a good growth profile, a revenue growth profile, there is some appetite for those sorts of companies. So I don't think all is lost here. I think what's happened is that the availability of capital means that essentially the, the risk takers are looking more to the US to making investments than to here. And so I still think we've got talent and knowledge here. It just needs sort of pulling back a little bit back across the pond. So, so we're not completely toast, but, but I do think we need to fix this soon. Otherwise, the ship completely sails. Okay, so following on from that, I'm a very strong believer in the quality of science that we have in this country at many of the universities, not just the Golden Triangle, as it's called. What do you think sets the UK apart as a life sciences hub and what opportunities do you see for growth coming out of those areas and which areas particularly excite you? So I agree with you that we've got academic expertise across the country. I think we probably could do a better job of translating some of that. And I think that's a combination of probably people and capital. We're still the third global buyer cluster behind maybe Boston and San Francisco, San Diego sort of area globally. So we're not doing too badly. Where I think we've got substantial advantages at the moment, which 
we must be careful not to lose are in two areas, really. One is, I think, in cell and gene therapy. And that's largely as a result of the catapults that uh, the Cameron government put together in 10, 10, 12 years ago. So we've got a lot of expertise there, but we need to make the next step, in my view, which is we need to make sure we create a manufacturing base for cell therapy and gene therapy in the UK. Because if you look at sort of the previous sort of major technologies, say therapeutic antibodies, which were the technologies invented in Cambridge, but I can't think of one therapeutic antibody that's actually manufactured in the UK today. And so all that expertise kind of dissipated over time because of where that technology was developed and ultimately where those drugs were manufactured. The other area that I think we've got a significant comparative advantage right now is in genomics. And I think there are a lot of companies using genomics in sort of drug discovery applications, which is great. But also we've got applications, clinical applications of genomics. So with an organization like Genomics England, Our Future Health, we're building a lot of data sets, et cetera, that what makes us the envy of the world compared to sort of some things that are going on in the US and also in China. That said, you can't just sit back. I think that it's great having all this data, but what we really need is to build a commercial sector around that that's taking some of those discoveries and actually turning them into applications either for consumers or in the clinic and building businesses that have uh, global opportunities. And again, we've got a comparative advantage right now, but can we turn that into a sustainable comparative advantage by applying and translating that knowledge into things that actually have a meaningful impact on patients or, or individuals with respect to wellness and health? Presumably, in order to do all of that, obviously, we, we need the industry on the sort of commercial side, if you will, but we also probably need government help in terms of policy. Do you think you'll be able to influence government policy? You know, will you be able to provide feedback to the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology based on interactions with industry? And, and how good are those interactions at the moment? Do they need to improve? And are things like the government funding that we can access right now enough? Do we need to release more for that? Where do you see things going from here? I think those are all good questions and difficult to answer. But I think if you look at the life sciences vision that was published two years ago now, so Sir John Bell, Sir John Simons and Lord Pryor sort of came together to try and create a roadmap of where we could go. I think that vision, I think, is a great direction of travel and it puts the NHS at the centre. The problem is, I think the NHS, and apologies to anybody who's working in the NHS at the moment, because I think with a backlog of waiting lists, everything is very short term at the moment and it's sort of crisis management, which makes it very difficult sort of if I come along and say, hey, I've got a great 10-year plan on how to implement genomics in, in this particular therapeutic area. No one's really got the time or energy to sort of embrace or engage with that right now. So I think we have some of the uh, infrastructures that could make this feasible. But I think that particularly with the NHS at the centre, it just doesn't have the time or ability to engage with that. Now, having said that, I think the way you get around that is you try and pick one or two areas which maybe you have an ability to execute on and actually you can show some progress. So I think there's sometimes a tendency to try and boil the ocean, which um, tends to be quite difficult. 
Whereas if you, you can just to pick one area where you can actually make something meaningful and when that works, you go and try and do two things and then when those work, you try and do four things, etc. So you, you start with sort of baby steps or stepping stones that with things that you know have got a much better chance of being implemented and executed. I think that's where you start. So, so I'm not despondent about but I think that sort of when you speak to the ministers in the Department of Health, They've got many other problems beyond sort of trying to fix things for the long term. Having said that, both sides, you know, the Labour Party is talking a lot about prevention. Uh, the current government's talking about prevention. And that's the best way to actually solve our healthcare cost conundrum. But it's still not clear to me how you implement that, because quite often you'll have the existing cost plus the cost of prevention before you get the benefit, which might be 15 years down the road. So there are some difficult decisions that need to be made. But I think the politicians are listening, but it's quite difficult to execute. Good. Always helpful when they listen and are open to to new ideas and changing things. How do you think events so far in 2023 have affected the industry? I speak, for example, about Silicon Valley bank crisis and some of the other banking crises as well. Silicon Valley Bank was just particularly important, I guess, to our tech and healthcare industries. Has it held things back or was it just a blip? Can we learn from it? And anything else you think has been important? So from a UK perspective, ironically, I think we're in a stronger position today than maybe we were six weeks ago. Not that I would have wished that weekend upon anybody because I know a lot of people were somewhat distraught, quite rightly. You know, suddenly all, their, all the money for their company seemingly had gone over the weekend. But I think it, what it revealed over that weekend to a variety of people in government, from both the Bank of England to the Treasury to other ministers and politicians, is A, how important our life sciences industry is, all the things that are going on. Essentially, it had very concentrated risk in this one bank, which now has been replaced by HSBC. And talking to the leadership at HSBC, they see a real opportunity to create a growth capital bank, which is quite good. I think it also shows that we had a banking crisis there that was fixed in the UK by the UK. So actually, HSBC buying Silicon Valley Bank, and there was no government bailout. Obviously, there was a lot of government intervention and discussion. But essentially, you've got a private sector solution that I think could end up putting us in a much stronger position, particularly if HSBC, as seems to be happening, is they're building on what was already at the UK arm of Silicon Valley Bank and pushing pushing forward and investing in that business, which I think is good for companies and it's good for the sector, not just in life sciences, but across innovation. When I look across the US, Silicon Valley Bank had many more lines of business, particularly in the venture debt area, uh, which was very important for tech, than possibly they had in Europe. And so I think that remains to see how that gets unraveled or um, packaged up and sold or whatever the solution may be. So I think that has having an impact on investors in the US who invest in the US. But I think it, stuff will be re- reinvented. It's not a complete disaster. Uh, it just might be. It just might mean that sort of uh, financing conditions remain difficult for two, three, four quarters, etc. All else being equal. So I think those events actually have been quite good for the UK because I think that that's what's precipitated, if you like, even greater engagement from the UK government to try and fix things for life sciences and innovative sectors, 
which maybe they were of a mind to do that three, four months ago. But I think that one event really crystallized things. And so I'm quite hopeful we could get some measure of pension reform later this year that could be really important for particularly for growth capital, but for any sort of smaller venture-backed companies. I'm not going to stop quite there. I'm going to ask you whether you've got any more things that you'd like to highlight or point out. Um, and also tell you that I too made the mistake with the minus 70 freezer. <laughs> Only it was someone else's freezer. So I got into even more trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not so good to ruin someone else's career. I'm quite happy ruining my own. I suppose hopefully... Anyone listening to this should come away with some optimism about where we are right now. I don't think the UK is not fixed. There are still lots of problems. We still need more seed capital. We need still need more Series A capital. Don't get me wrong. Just supplying a load of growth capital doesn't solve the financing problem for UK companies. But I think the thing that gives me confidence compared to sort of 15, 20 years ago when we first started investing in in public companies uh, in Europe. I think the quality of management teams is much better. I think our science has always been quite good, but I think the ability to translate is getting better. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's certainly getting better. And I think that there are a few areas where scientifically, the UK really does have a global leading opportunity. And I think it's incumbent upon us who've you know, been in the sector for a long time to sort of try and build those bridges for the next generation so that sort of be it capital or talent, skills, these sorts of things, so that sort of those people have an opportunity to really build world-leading companies of the next decade. And I'm pretty confident having met some of the entrepreneurs who are trying, you know, starting along this journey, there's some really talented people out there. And so I'm really hopeful and optimistic about the future of the sector here right now. And that's why, you know, there are a few of us sort of trying hard, you know, putting our backs against the wheel to try and move something along, because I think it it could have a, a real catalytic effect for everybody. Great. I look forward to it. That's going to be exciting. Thanks very much, Dan. Thanks, Eva. Always good to speak to you. 